You're listening to Take as Directed, a podcast on global health policy and the news, events, issues, and the people it affects. The problem is the world is in a shortage of vaccines. power and strength in women is the role because that maternal child and fear health and nutrition is what drives this disease and, t- and keeps it in the dark. I'm Steve Morrison, director of the Global Health Policy Center at the Center for Strategic and International Studies in Washington, D.C. In this podcast, you'll hear conversations led either by me or by my colleagues, Sarah Allender, Janet Fleischman, and Nellie Bristol, who serve as recurring hosts. We interview leaders fighting against some of the biggest public health challenges of our time. I'm Nellie Bristol, Senior Fellow with the CSIS Global Health Policy Center. At the end of June, the board of Gavi, the Vaccine Alliance, approved the framework for its new 5.0 strategy, for 2021 to 2025, with an ambitious set of priorities for this new phase. In this episode of Take Us Directed, I sit down with Amanda Glassman, Executive Vice President and Senior Fellow at the Center for Global Development, and Catherine Bliss, a Senior Fellow here at the Global Health Policy Center, to discuss these changes and their implications for the broader immunization agenda beyond 2020. So Catherine, can you give us a brief overview of Gavi and the replenishment process it's about to undergo? Sure. So Gavi actually turns 20 in January. Gavi was launched in the year 2000 at the World Economic Forum at Davos as the Global Alliance for Vaccines and Immunizations. And the idea was to create an alliance, a partnership of public and private entities, really kind of looking back at the decade of the 1990s, where a number of people, you know, really began to see that there was a division between the public and private sectors and that global immunization coverage for children had really begun to stagnate. Who were some of the initial instigators? The Bill and Melinda Gates Foundation, the World Health Organization, the World Bank, and UNICEF are among kind of the key founders. And then over time, both donor countries, other private sector entities, some of the pharmaceutical companies, some of the medical device companies, a wide range of civil society organizations, and of course, implementing countries are now partners. So it's quite an extensive alliance. And so over the years, they've focused on getting vaccines to low-income countries primarily as a financing mechanism? So the focus from the beginning has been really to bring new and underutilized vaccines to children in the world's poorest countries. Over time, that number of countries has decreased as countries have improved their economic performance and begun moving through what Gavi now calls its transition process. And I know Amanda will probably talk quite a bit more about the transition process. Over time, the number of countries eligible for financing and support, also health systems strengthening support from Gavi, has gone down. But the focus remains on you know, the issue of getting vaccines to children in the world's poorest countries and increasingly in this new framework, focusing on reaching the most remote and most difficult to reach children. So just on the threshold for Gavi eligibility, so there are fewer countries now because more countries are doing better economically? Yes. Okay. Amanda, can you talk about immunization coverage globally and what some of the challenges are to improving it? Yeah. So I think the good news about Gavi when it was founded is there was this big time gap between the time a vaccine was introduced in a high-income country and the time it reached a low-income country, where generally it could do much more good because there are more kids that are exposed to vaccine-preventable diseases. So that gap when Gavi started was like 20 to 25 years. Wow. 
But with Gavi, the gap had shortened to you know a couple of years, basically. So that that really is something that we should take a moment to appreciate. And is that because they were able to get the vaccine to the countries? It's because in there way, was in ways that it wasn't able to get there before. Exactly. I, I mean, it consolidated money to be able to purchase these vaccines in bulk for low-income countries. And that's been a great strength of Gavi, that market-shaping piece of their work. That's contributed to getting introduction happening almost at the same time in high-income countries and low-income countries. And I think that is pretty remarkable. The big challenge, however, is immunization coverage. So there has been progress, and in some countries are really standout stars. So a country like Burundi, even very let's call them low governance countries, have done really well in some cases at getting basic childhood immunization up very high. What's their key to success, would you say? I mean, it could well be because they are small. It could be because the head of the expanded program on immunization in that country might be very good, or perhaps the external partners that are part of Gavi Alliance, like UNICEF or WHO, are working really well together Mm -hmm. to focus on getting coverage up. You know, if you think about a country like Rwanda that's done so well, they are allocating towards poor areas of the country as much as they are allocating to wealthier areas. They're focused on results. They use a lot of performance-based management approaches and payment approaches. So, so it's a priority for them. And it's a really, priority. They're really going after it. Exactly. On the other hand, there have been some countries, and unfortunately, those are the countries with the larger birth cohorts. These are low-middle-income countries that have not done so well in immunization coverage, such as, such as Nigeria, mm-hmm. for example, that has 40% full immunization for age for eight WHO-recommended vaccines. And Ethiopia, it's almost the same share of kids. And so, you know, if we've worked for 15 years in Gavi, which is amazing, and we've gotten all these vaccines to countries, but we're still seeing low full immunization rates, and we're also seeing very sharp inequities between poorer and wealthier regions of countries, that puts the whole premise of the activity at risk, right? Because without full immunization for age, we don't have herd immunity and we don't get rid of the diseases. So how does this new strategy, Catherine, address some of these issues? Well, the new strategy is consistent with some of the previous work that Gavi has done in that it focuses on four key areas, immunization coverage, health system strengthening, sustainability, and market shaping or creating healthy markets. But I think one thing that you'll see a much greater emphasis and discussion about in this new strategy or the framework that's been approved is around equity and really reaching those most difficult to reach children you know, and adults because some of the products are protective for adults as well. So we're not just talking about kids. Within that, you know, I think you'll see a greater emphasis on gender equity and a real emphasis on trying to understand how to empower particularly women and girls to access vaccines for themselves and their families. So are their rates generally lower overall, would you say, for girls? Why the focus on gender? I think one thing they want to do is better understand the data, to collect data, because it's not always collected in terms of boys and girls. The other is to ensure that mothers are empowered to bring their kids to the clinic and you know that they can negotiate that within the family as well. You'll also see, I think, greater discussion and emphasis on community um, outreach and education and really just trying to better collect data to understand how to reach the most difficult and remote populations. So in looking at equities, they're looking at hard-to-reach populations, mobile populations, 
highly urbanized poor. So what does that mean for Gabby? And also they're looking at kids in middle-income countries, which is a bit of a change for them because they generally even focus on low income. So what is that going to mean for them operationally? Amanda? So, I mean, one thing to say is when you look at a country like Ethiopia that has this big birth cohort and that has, it's a lower middle income country, it's getting wealthier, hopefully it overcomes the recent governance issues. They have hugely variable immunization coverage inside their country. So one of their poorest provinces, which is Afar, has 18% full immunization coverage, whereas Addis, their capital, 90% immunization. Now, if you look at public spending on health, it's an exact mirror of those inequalities. So Afar gets something like $1.39 per head for public spending, not just on immunization, that's for everything. Any non-salary expenditure, $1.39. And in Addis, that number is not very high still, but it's $5 per head. So you, you get a sense of the extreme resource constraints, but also the fact that we're not seeing, you know, you probably might want to give more money to the very poorest regions because it actually might be more expensive to serve kids in those very remote places. So I think that's part of thinking about, OK, well, so then how should that change how Gavi operates? It really will change or it should change if we're going to focus as a partnership on immunization coverage. We probably have to think about policy on spending and how immunization fits into universal health coverage. You know, we've been thinking in the past as, oh, the problem is just that the health system is weak. Let's identify a couple of things about the health system that might be related to immunization coverage that we should work on. But we'll probably need to look a step above kind of the policy and budget context that is framing the incentives and the resources that people in very poorest areas of those countries have it there. Right. I was yeah. in Ethiopia looking at some of the outlying areas along the borders related to polio eradication, and there were 80 different languages spoken in Ethiopia. I mean, just the cultural and the linguistic and the resource, and there were no health services there. I mean, essentially, what polio was providing were the only health services that were out there. So it's a huge challenge. But in terms of what Gavi has done over the years, is it going to have to move more into supporting delivery mechanisms if it's going to address some of these issues? Certainly, Gavi has played an incredibly important role in facilitating the purchase of vaccines through the bulk procurement, through UNICEF, if countries choose to go that way, and then you know just creating kind of a step-by-step process by which, as they develop economically over time, they begin to pay more and more for the vaccines and the co-financing process. But, you know, the health strengthening work has also been a really critical part of Gavi's mission, you know, really helping countries develop not only their immunization systems and improve the cold chain and the supply and delivery of vaccines throughout the country, but also how to create stronger systems for health workers and the other aspects of health delivery that can support and enable the immunization systems themselves. And so Gavi has, I think, undertaken a number of different evaluations of its health system strengthening support to continue to try to improve that. And one thing they've begun doing is really delivering that, working very carefully with the countries to craft uh, particular programs at the country level that are tailored to the needs of the countries themselves. The the HSS window, I mean, there is this very good evaluation. And I think what it shows is that the size of the grants that went to support some of these interventions were quite small. First of all, they're all under $5 million. And for a big country like Ethiopia, $5 million just doesn't make much of a difference, doesn't influence the way anyone's delivering care. Also, the mechanism was quite fragmented and hard to understand for country partners. That's what the evaluation reports. 
So and what does that mean exactly if the mechanism's fragmented? So there were like six different windows and different mechanisms that you needed to apply for. So it wasn't always clear to a country government what was available. So and for what different were aspects the of their health systems, like you Correct. get a cold chain grant and yeah. you get a health worker grant. Exactly. And they've, they've tried to refine that over time, but it's still an issue. And then I think the other piece is more around... Well, how is it that those investments were going to make a difference for delivery? You know, it was sort of like, well, we'll fund the refrigerators and or the cold chain, and then we'll hope, or we'll fund better data, and then that will, in turn. But I guess we probably need to think about ways, and I guess we don't have to think about it as Gavi only as an organization, but Gavi as an alliance. That partnership part is really important. Much of this money has gone to WHO and UNICEF support. And could there be different kinds of accountability between Gavi and UNICEF and WHO to ensure better delivery? Or should the money go more directly to governments mm-hmm. to deliver the services? Or should it go to NGOs? I mean, you're talking about a remote area where government doesn't have a presence in many remote areas. I mean, is it the case that you say to government, gosh, you know, where you have no coverage at all, you need to deliver these vaccines. I'm going to give you money and you're going to contract an NGO to do it or something like that until such time as you have operational capacity in mm-hmm. that area. Yeah, Those are things that are feasible. But it just requires us to focus on the delivery of the vaccine to the entire population. Well, how much of a mind shift is that for Gavi to think more broadly, but also more deeply about what's going on with these health systems and how it can step in and help out? I mean, Gavi doesn't have a lot of presence on the ground. They have a secretariat based in Geneva. They work very closely with WHO and UNICEF offices, as well as you know with the country health offices. I think they've, over the last five to 10 years, greatly expanded their country staff. And so the country staff are able to really be very much in touch with people on the ground. But having that kind of day-to-day information about the needs and the delivery issues is probably not something people based in Geneva are going to be able to do as well as someone based in the country. So they really need the alliance part of their alliance, as Amanda was saying, with WHO, with NGOs, with the government, people who are a little closer to what's going on there. One of the other things that's been kind of a big goal is how to help countries self-finance their own vaccination systems. So what can Gabby's role be in that, Amanda? And what are some of the financing mechanisms that could aid that? I, mean, I think it's very related to the exchange we've just had, right, which is around how do countries actually give money to their expanded program on immunization in a routine way? How do they send money to subnational governments to provide certain kinds of services? What incentives do they create around that? I don't think there's much innovative financing available in this space. I think financing immunization programs in countries is boring. It should be boring. It should be very routine. Yes, It's the basics. I think there are a couple things that Gabby or the external alliance could do to support governments more in this effort. I mean, one is to help governments set priorities for their own spending based on cost effectiveness as one criteria. So, you know, obviously vaccination prevents a lot of disease burden. It prevents a lot of health care consumption. And if that's the case, not every vaccine is highly cost effective, but for the most part they are and therefore have that process that would be ongoing to allocate in that way towards immunization. I think the data actually is a really key point because if populations know, if governments know, if parliaments know what's happening with immunization coverage and its equity over time, maybe that will also motivate them to focus on this as a budget line Mm -hmm. item over time as well. Well, and as you say, the Mm -hmm. outcomes, like just giving money to these particular aspects of the system, but are they actually 
Exactly. Maybe drawing the line about how they're improving the outcomes and the immunization coverage would be more of an incentive for countries. Yeah. And some countries have used local level accountability interventions that are interesting. So, you know, the report card that you put up on the community center door or something like that. Like mm-hmm. in our community, only 10 percent of kids are vaccinated. Go vaccinate your kid. Mm-hmm. They do need to explore they, the alliance writ large, probably need to look at demand a bit as well. Although we know this is in everyone's self-interest to do, you know, if we offer this service that's very valuable, that people will take it up. But the reality is that very poor people live very far from health facilities. You know, if I don't need to spend on prevention if I'm not certain I'm going to get the disease. It's just like the problem people have buying health insurance in the United mm-hmm. States, right? We're thinking, well, maybe I won't get sick. Right. You know, maybe I'll pray. So because it has this huge cost mm-hmm. and these families are so, so, so poor, Many times people will not go voluntarily to go What's get their kids vaccinated. What's the number one way to, to get people to go get vaccinated It's in the poor countries in particular? Well, like I, they I talk about demand. That, like, yeah. What would convince somebody that they should make this trek and yeah. take this time out of their day, which is going to have a cost benefit? Well, we really need to evaluate strategies, I think. Yeah. yeah, I think there's a lot of things that have been tried. One is this kind of report card community accountability, obviously giving information, obviously taking care to advantage of the fact when a mother gives birth, if she happens to be in a facility, you know, that's a great time to educate them about vaccines. Mm-hmm. So there's been a lot that's tried or, you know, very small cash transfers or SMS reminders. Mm-hmm. Uh, the issue is sort of what's the right thing for any particular circumstance that's right. going to so work best. So it's different everywhere. Right. And I mean, of course, we would be helped if there wasn't this vaccine misinformation stuff Mm -hmm. going on in the larger community, which is also affecting what happens in low middle income countries. Catherine, so speaking of money, Gavi is coming into a replenishment cycle. What is the timing for that and what are they hoping for? So the Gavi Replenishment Conference, uh, which Gavi will ask donor countries and other members of the alliance to contribute to its operating expenses to to really put this new strategy for 2021 to 2025 into effect, that conference is scheduled to happen, I think, in June of next year in the United Kingdom. So June of 2020. What that means is that Gavi will sort of kick off its replenishment phase or process in August of this year at TCAD, the Tokyo International Conference on African Development. And it's at that conference that they will present what they call the investment opportunity or the ask and, you know, basically cost out what the strategic framework will will cost and then begin to ask donors to think about how they're going to contribute to that. Do they have a particular figure in mind at this point or is that not? I don't know that the number has been released yet, and that that may be something that will come out in Tokyo. So the last replenishment was in 2014 in Berlin, and at that one, countries were really sort of promised that it was going to be the most expensive replenishment, and that after that period, they could start to see the asks decrease because, you know, they said, look, you know, we have a lot of countries that are getting ready to transition. They're going to be co-financing. They're going to be self-sustaining. And so over time, the number of the operating costs are going to go down. Mm -hmm. What I have been hearing is that that may not be the case. It may actually go up. And, you know, that's for a number of reasons. One, the most remote, the most difficult children and and families to reach, it's just more expensive. You Mm -hmm. have to get further out into Mm -hmm. these, you know, remote areas or even in the peri-urban areas, you know, and the migrating populations. Second, there are a lot more vaccines that are available now than there even were in the first replenishment in 2011 and, and in 2014. There are others in the pipeline that may be expensive as well. And so it may be that we'll see this replenishment 
have a slight uptick and, you know, then the discussion about when that'll go down may happen at the next one. Right. Can I add a little bit on, yes. you know, we talked about the problem of undervaccinated children is in these large lower middle income countries on the one hand, and also in refugee populations that are living in middle income countries that also have severe fiscal constraints. And so I think one big issue is whether Gavi is about those undervaccinated kids or not. It's certainly consistent with their mission, which is every child everywhere. Versus unvaccinated kids. Or... Un and undervaccinated okay. kids, right? That's, that's I mean, because if so we want re- herd immunity, yeah. if we want the disease impact, mm-hmm. we need to get that done. Right. The issue is whether Gavi will really have a role in that area in dealing with immunization coverage and in under-immunized and unimmunized kids in these lower middle-income countries. Mm-hmm. In the strategy document that was just released, they said no more than 3% of their total budget would go to that set of countries. I'm really worried about that. Just because if we really want to get the job done, and this is an alliance, a genuine alliance that's not just Gavi narrowly uh, as an organization, but really the group of organizations that work to promote global vaccination, is this really enough? Is this realistic? So I think that's something that I'll be watching in the next couple of months. And then the other big situation that we're in, of course, is lots of global health security threats. We all agree that preparedness has a lot to do with getting kids vaccinated. And and there again, does Gabby have a role here beyond the low-income countries or not? Mm-hmm. And should that be reflected in the spend? And then finally, Gabby has a role in polio eradication. Mm-hmm. I think the decision has been taken to finance an activated polio vaccine and the transition from oral polio vaccine to IPV as part of Gabby. It's no problem for the low incomes that are eligible, but most of the polio is in those lower middle incomes that are transitioning. And the price point is much higher. Mm -hmm. And, you know, you don't save lives immediately because they only have a couple cases. Right. So it's really about this is a global public good. Mm -hmm. This We all benefit from that. So it's appropriate that the global community would would co-finance IPV so that we can get rid of the disease forever. So I guess I would actually expect to see more of an ask. I hope I see more of an ask and ambition in this regard. But it will depend on whether... The donors to the organization are ready to support Gavi at that different because level. it's just sort of a mission shift in some ways for them because they're they're looking at a different set of kids in different countries. What are the numbers in terms of how many kids are under or unvaccinated in middle income countries versus low income countries? Do we have those? Because I just think it is sort of <laughs> odd that they said yeah. this three percent. Yeah. When it doesn't, maybe that doesn't have any reflection of the populations they're talking about. So just sort of interesting. Yeah. I mean, the WHO and UNICEF just came out with the 2018 numbers, I think, earlier this week. They show that 60 percent of the under immunized children are in just like 10 countries. And several of them are middle income countries, not even necessarily lower middle income. But I mean, you have Brazil, Angola, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. Philippines. And others, and India, and India, India, yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. So trying to figure out how to engage in those countries with what they're calling catalytic support, as opposed to you know maybe some of the kind of more direct support that the lower income countries have been receiving. You know, I think it sounds like it's something that the board is going to take at least another six months to mm-hmm. to think about. So a lot of challenges, a lot of potential for some really great changes and some improved health throughout the world. It'd be exciting to watch. So thank you both, and thank you for joining us on this episode of Take is Directed, featuring Amanda Glassman and Catherine Bliss. We invite you to subscribe so you never miss our latest episodes. To keep up to date on our latest work, please visit the Global Health Policy Center program page at CSIS.org. 